In a short but powerful comment in this week's parsha, the Meshachachma combines both keen reading of the Psukim, a sharp sensitivity to the Pshat, with a powerful and inspiring and very important Hashkafic idea, a combination which is characteristic of his brilliant Perish al Torah. The Posuk in our Parsha, the well known Posuk in Parsha's Nitzavim, Perak Lamed, Posuk Tezvav, talks about the choice, the great choice that stands before all of us. We are told, Behold, I set before you today, you have a choice. Two roads lie before you in life. You can choose the good and get life. Or you can choose the evil and get death. Right? This is the, the great moral responsibility that we all have. Freedom of choice. Two roads, but each road has different consequences, leads to a different destination. The Meshachachma, in a sensitive reading of this posak, notices that in fact, this Pasuk sounds eerily similar to a Pasuk we had earlier in Sefer Dvarim, in Parshas Re'e, in Perk Yud Aleph. And there the Pasuk also starts off with, Re'e Nasati Lefnechem Hayom. Almost identical introduction. And if the two Pasukim start off the same, then the fact that they vary one from the other in the continuation is that much more important. Because, says the Meshachachma, in that earlier Pasuk in Re'e, what are the two choices that lie before us? What are the two roads, the divergent paths? Bracha uklala. Blessing and curse. Yet somehow, in our parsha, the stakes have been raised. Now, bracha and klala are nothing to sneeze at. Who doesn't want blessing? And God forbid, who would want a curse? However, says the Meshachachma, somehow when we get to Parsha Snitzavim, Perak Lamid, the stakes are much higher. Now it's not just blessing and curse, it's Chaim and Mavis. It's actually life and death. Ask the Meshachachma, what has changed? Why is it so much worse? Why are the stakes so much higher in our Parsha, in Nitzavim, in Perak Lamid, than they were in Parshas Re'eh, in Perak Yeralev? To answer this question, says the Meshachachma, one thing changed. But with that, everything changed. And that is the Pasuk that we read just a few Pesukim earlier in our Parsha, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, Ki ha-mitzvah hazos, this mitzvah, which I'm commanding you today, is not concealed, and it's not far away. It's not in the heavens, it's not on the other side of the ocean, rather, it's very close to you. You can do it. What is this mitzvah that the Torah is waxing poetic about? Says the Meshachachma, based on the comments of the Sefer Haikarim of Yosef Albo, also in the Ramban in our parsha, they assume that the mitzvah being referred to here is none other than tshuva. Tshuva is introduced to the world, introduced in these psukim, just a few psukim earlier, here in Parshas Nitzavim. Says the Meshachachma, the difference between the representation, the presentation in Parshat Re'eh and in our parsha, is what happened in between them. What happened in between them is the tshuva it was introduced to the world and introduced to the moral calculus. Says the Meshachachma, in Parshas Re'eh, there was no tshuva yet. It hadn't been introduced to the world. And therefore, while you had free choice, and the free choice had consequences, but the stakes were only so high. Bracha and klala. However, now that tshuva has already been introduced into the world, when our Parsha speaks about the two choices and the two divergent paths that lie before you, it's not just talking about the possibility that you could choose to sin. It's talking about the possibility that you could choose to sin and not 
take advantage of doing tshuva. You sinned and you never even repented for that sin. Ah, says the Mashachachma, that's much worse. If not only did you sin, but you didn't do tshuva for that sin, you didn't repent for that sin, that is much worse than just, not, than just sinning in the first place. How so? Why does it make the sin worse? So for this, the Meshachachma explains, based on a famous comment of the Vilna Gon. The Vilna Gon comments on the Mishnah in Perkei Avos, which tells us, in a very related message, that we should never forget that ultimately every one of us has to give a, give a din v'cheshbon before God. Which sounds like we're being told to remember that you know God notices everything, remembers everything, and ultimately we'll have to give an accounting and accept a judgment for our good and, unfortunately, bad deeds. However, the Grah is sensitive to the language there in the Mishnah. What is the difference, asks the Grah, between Din and Cheshbon? The message basically seems to be the same, the one we already explained and conveyed. So why the double language of Din and Cheshbon? And the Grah says, in a well-known and, frankly, scary <laughs> interpretation, that, in fact, any time you sin, you are potentially going to be punished for two things. Not only the actual sin which is what the Gros says is din, you have a judgment on your actual sin, but you will also be responsible for, and you also may be punished for, the cheshbon. What's the cheshbon? That's the mitzvah or mitzvos you could have been doing when in fact you sinned. The squandered and wasted opportunity, the mitzvos you could have been doing, but instead you chose to sin, you're responsible for that wasted and squandered opportunity as well. So you get clopped twice, a double patch for the sin, and for the lost opportunity of the mitzvahs never done. That's Din and Cheshbon. So working off of that, based on the Vilna Gon, says the Meshachachma, it's not directly the same thing as the Vilna Gon, it's not identical, but in the spirit of the Vilna Gon, says the Meshachachma, it's the same thing when it comes to not doing tshuva. It's one thing to do a sin. That's a punishment, and God forbid, that could be a klala. And certainly if we do a mitzvah, that's a bracha. But it could be a klala. However, says the Grah, excuse me, says the Meshachachma, based on the Grah, if not only did we sin, but we didn't do tshuva for that sin, so then it's much worse, because not only are we being punished for the sin, the din, we're also being punished for not taking advantage of the opportunity called tshuva. And to not do tshuva is even worse than the sin. We can think about it in our own life, if someone has hurt us, and then we give them an opportunity to apologize, and they still don't take that, they still don't apologize, that's even worse, that's even more hurtful than the initial pain that they caused. So too says the Meshachachma, that's Pshat here. That's why it's not just Bracha and Klala, but it's much worse. It's Chaim and Mavis. Because now you not only sinned, but you didn't take the opportunity to say you're sorry, to make it right with Hashem. You didn't do Tshuva. The Meshachachma ends by saying, Zem Musr Nora. This is a valuable lesson, indeed. In a very famous section of Psukim, coming towards the end of Parshas Nitzavim, we read about Ki HaMitzvah Hazos. This mitzvah, which I am commanding you today, Lo it's not distant or wondrous from you, Lo Rechoka, Lo it's not in the heavens, as if to say, Miyala Lanu Lanu, such that you'd have to say, who will go to the heavens and take it for us, etc. Lo Liam, it's not over the sea, in which you'd have to say someone has to go over the sea to get it, but rather, so it's close and near to you, in your heart and in your, your mouth. One of the key phrases in these famous psukim is, it's not in heaven. And, of course, the ambiguity here is, what is the it? What's not in heaven? And, of course, this relates to the ambiguity of the whole section. 
ha-mitzvah hazos, this mitzvah, which we're waxing poetic about. What is the it? What are we talking about? And what is the loba shamayim he? So there are various interpretations in different sources in Chazal and certainly in later commentaries. But I want to share with you one of the interpretations, which is an incredible and famous and incredibly powerful and impactful one, and that is from the Gemara in Maseches Bab Metziah and Afnun Tesamid Beis. The Gemara is going to get to something incredibly powerful, as I mentioned. Starts off, though, in a rather technical uh, discussion, and that is a machlokas about the status of a certain kind of oven known as the Tanur Shel Achnai, which, unlike previous ovens made in the time of Chazal, this oven, which was based on uh, certain stones that were then wrapped around in a circle, kind of like a coil of a snake, and they were individual sections of hard-cooked stone, baked stone, which were cemented to each other with some kind of a sand. And the way they were made leads to a machlokes, whether if they come in contact with something that's tamay, or the is this type of oven susceptible to tumah? A regular oven in the time of Chazal was, but this different kind of oven, for reasons which we won't get into now, might not be. And this is the debate. The Chachamim, the majority of you say, this oven, for whatever is idiosyncratic and unique about it, it can still become Tamei. But, nevertheless, uh, there was a dissenting opinion, Rebbe Yezer, uh, very passionately, as we shall see, he disagreed and he felt that this type of oven, for various reasons, cannot become Tamei no matter what. So the Gemara goes on to say that, in fact, Rebbe Yezer would not give in. Despite the fact that he was outvoted, and we usually go with the majority, Achirab and Lahatos, he would not give in. And in fact, on that day, Heshev Rebbe Yezer called Tshuva Shabolam. He advanced any argument you could imagine to defend his lenient view, but he couldn't move the crowd. The majority view still was against him. But he still didn't accept their majority stronger position. And therefore he called out, if the halacha is like me, let this charuv, let this carob tree prove it. And sure enough, immediately, ne'ekar charuv, all of a sudden, the carob tree was uprooted from its place. hundred amos, clearly a divine, miraculous indication that he's correct. Look, he called for the proof from heaven and he got it. Nevertheless, the chachamim respond, we don't have miraculous proofs, we're not going to decide a halacha based on a carob tree. He didn't give up. He said, okay, if I'm right, let this water canal, this Amas Hamayim, prove it. And sure enough, right when he said that, Chazru Amas Hamayim Lacharem, all of a sudden the water started flowing backwards. An unbelievable miracle, clearly confirming that his position is correct. And once again, the sages did not bow. They did not accept the miraculous proof. Then he said, okay, a third time, if I'm right, Kosle Beis HaMedrash let the walls of the Beis HaMikdash indicate for me. And at that moment, all of the walls in the Beis HaMikdash started leaning in. And that was obviously scary. All the rabbis are in the base matters, and all of a sudden the walls start caving in on them. And nevertheless, they are still not moved. The halacha is not like that. And last but not least, finally, Rabbi Lezer says, okay, if none of these proofs worked, im halacha kamosi min let the heaven themselves say that I'm right. And sure enough, right away, says the Gemara, a heavenly voice, a baskal, came out and clearly proclaimed, malachem eitzel Rabbi Lezer, what are you arguing with Rabbi Lezer for? The halacha is like him in all places. So says Rabbi Yezer, he got up on his feet, he got up on the chair and he said, don't you see this? Don't you see that I'm correct? To which, excuse me, it's Rabbi Yoshua, I'm sorry, representing the sages, got up and said, I don't care if the carob tree, the water, the walls, and now even the divine voice itself, none of it matters because, quoting our Pasuk, lo ba he, it is not in heaven. And clearly from the Gemara's perspective, what is the it? Halachic authority. 
Chazal understands, this is also in the Gemara in Erevin, that this whole section is referring to the entire Torah, that the Karv Halacha Hadavar, the Mitzvah Hazos, is Torah. <clears throat> and this particular section means when it comes to authority to interpret Torah, to Paskin Halacha of the Torah, we have rules, and they're human rules. Certain ways to prove things, and we go by the majority of the rabbis. We don't take miraculous or divine intervention. Lo b'shemayimhi, authority is no longer vested in heaven, but in the rabbinic establishment. And the Gemara says, Kfar Sinai, once Hashem gave over the Torah to human beings, it's now based on human interpretation, assuming people are faithfully following the rules that the Torah itself gave us. And therefore, we don't follow baskols, heavenly voices. It doesn't matter. The Torah says, Acheram l'hatos, go after the majority. And the majority here voted against Rebbe Yezer and voted that this oven could become Tameh. There's an incredible, this itself is an incredible Gemara, and in, in different contexts we could elaborate on it, but really a dramatic, dramatic agada describing and elaborating on our Pasuk, Loba Shamaimi, the rabbinic authority has been given from human beings, uh, from, to human beings from Hashem. The Gemara adds an incredibly fascinating postscript to this already incredible Gemara, and that is that Rabbi Nassan once saw El Navi, and he said to him, tell me something, when this debate was happening with Rabbi Yezer and the sages, and all these miracles were happening, and the sages always were rejecting it, what was Hashem doing at that time? So the Gemara says, he was laughing. God was smiling, he was laughing, and he said, My children have defeated me. In other words, I myself, God himself, is passing to Rabbi Yezer, and the rabbis are using God's own words, the Torah's own rules, of Loba Shamaimi and Aharab Lahatos, to sort of speak outvote and defeat Hashem, and Hashem took a certain pleasure in that, the way a parent might get nachas from a child who's using the things that the parent himself taught, and even outsmarting the, child, the parent, so to Hashem says, the authority is no longer in me, nitzchuni banai, lo he. Atem nitzavim hayom kuchem lifnei Hashem alokechem. At the outside of our parsha, Perach of Tess, Moshe gathers the people together and he's about to give them a major significant speech of religious motivation and guidance. Who does he gather? The Pasuk continues and tells us, Rashechem, Shivtechem, Ziknechem, Vishvetrechem, the Kol Ish Yisrael, the entire strata of Jewish people, from the most important uh, to the least important, everyone literally says the Pasuk, Kol Ish Yisrael. Rashi, commenting on this verse, points out that the reason that Moshe is having this discussion now and giving this speech is because this is a period of transition. In Rashi's language, miparnes laparnes, we're going from one leader to the next. Moshe's time on the biblical stage is about to come to an end, and shortly we're going to be starting the new era of leadership of Yehoshua. And therefore, at this moment of transition, he gathered the people, Osalehem matseva. Here Rashi is sensitive to the choice of language in the Pasuk, Atem Nitzavim. says Rashi Nitzavim here comes from the word Matseva, like a monument. He gathered the people together, he stood them up together like a monument. Kedei Lezarzam, says Rashi, in order to give them these words of religious guidance and encouragement. And Rashi then further points out that this is the first, but not the last, example of this. It seems to be a pattern in Jewish history, and Rashi gives other examples where leaders, towards the end of their uh, tenure of leadership, gathered the people for one big final speech. Rashi explains the what, but it's not clear that Rashi, on its face, has sufficiently explained the why. Why Dafka now? Okay, this is the end of Moshe's leadership and shortly before Yeshua's, but why does that mean that there needs to be a, a speech now? Why is this the right time for it? And secondly, even though Rashi is clearly sensitive to the choice of language, Nitzavim, it's not really clear though why 
the Torah chose that word. Rashi doesn't seem to sufficiently answer that question. After all, if the real content, the real intent of the pasuk is that Moshe gathered the people together, and that seems to be in fact the case. So we would have expected not nitzavim, which is kind of an awkward usage in, of the word, but rather some form of uh, asifa or aguda, some kind of gathering. Why mat nitzavim from the language of matzeva? Rav Eliyameir Bloch the famed Telzer Rosh Hashiva and an ingenious Abalmusser who had a keen sense for human psychology and human nature, in his collected work on the Parsha Penine Das, he explains as follows. He says, Nitzavim needs to be understood not just standing in the physical sense like a monument, but rather standing at attention in the sense of to stop as opposed to just going on with your regular life. Usually we just go from one thing to the next. Nitzavim means stop what you're doing and think about it. Don't just mindlessly go from one thing to the next, one day to the next, one project to the next, but rather be at attention. Stop. Be mindful. Be thoughtful. Think about what you're doing. Be deliberate in your choices. It could very well be that previously you were making good decisions, but if it was just, so to speak, automatic or on autopilot without really thinking about it, that's a problem. Certainly, if we're making bad decisions, it's a problem. But even if we're making good decisions, says Rav Bloch, the key to life into ultimately leading a happy, meaningful, fulfilled, and uh, successful and spiritually aspirational life is to be thoughtful. Most people in life, he says, really the biggest challenge that people have is they're on autopilot, continuing habits without thinking. The key to success in life, says Rebloch, in all the ways we just mentioned, religiously, emotionally, spiritually, is to stop periodically to be able to truly think about what we're doing and make mindful and thoughtful decisions. But the key to all of that, says Rebloch, is to be able to stop and pause, and then therefore to think. And that is what was happening with Atem Nitzavim. Rav Bloch actually adds that if people would do this, uh, he thinks that most of the time they would actually make the right and positive decision. After all, he says the Pasuk in Tehillim tells us, Per Kofiotes, Chishavti Derachai Vashiva Ragli El Eidosecha. Chishavti Derachai. I thought about the path I was on. And that's the key, says Rav Bloch. Says David Amalek and Tehillim, Chishavti, I thought. And once I thought about my path, then almost naturally, Ashiva Ragli El, Raglai El Eidosecha. I turned or I returned my legs, my walking, my orientation in life, El Eidosecha, towards your mitzvot, towards the right path. The key to going on the right path is Chishavti Derachai. First stop, first think about how you're going, and then we're more likely than not to actually make the right decision. Why? In terms of the timing, why did all this have to happen? Dafka now at the end of Moshe's life, right before Yeshua takes over. So says Rablach very uh, persuasively that even though the change in leadership is not directly connected to the uh, important act of self-reflection that we're talking about for the individual people in the nation, nevertheless, when you're about to experience and witness a change in leadership, that is a time that is naturally attuned for this type of contemplation. It's natural to feel that since one stage of communal and national leadership is ending and one is about to start, that in a parallel way, it's an opportunity for you and really a natural time and an opportune time to think about you yourself, how not only is the nation starting afresh in a new chapter, but you yourself have an opportunity to start afresh and therefore it's an opportune time. Dafka, when anyway there's a transition happening, transitions are potentially scary but they're also ripe with opportunity for growth because they naturally lend themselves to our contemplation and mindfulness. And hopefully that's really what Cesar Bloch Tshuva is all about, new beginnings. That's why the Pasuk says, Atem Nitzavim Hayom. The focus is on today, a new beginning, and the transition in leadership is a perfect opportunity to make that decision and to have that moment of con- stopping, thinking, and contemplation. This idea of 
the challenge of life, of breaking out of habit, uh, repeats itself, perhaps, in the second parak of the Parsha, Parak Lamed, Pasuk Yedalid, where we have a section leading up to that Pasuk that talks about HaMitzvah Hazos, which according to certain Mepharshim, such as Ramban, is a section dedicated to Tshuva. And if we are talking about Tshuva, so in the Pasuk Yedalid it says, Kikar Lacha Adavar Meod. This thing, evidently Tshuva, at least according to the Ramban, it's Kar Lacha Adavar Meod. It's very easy to do. It's not very far away. It's very accessible. I mean, it's easy for a person to do. Really? Asr Chaim Shmulevitz in his Sichos Musr, is tshuva really karve lecha? Is tshuva really easy to do? If it was so easy, why doesn't everyone do tshuva? How come people seem to have such a hard time with it? And he explains in an explanation that is basically very similar, if not totally identical with what we just saw previously, that over time and through the repetition of our behavior, we've become habitualized to our situation. But says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, if we could just stop even for one moment and break out of our routine, there's a good chance we do tshuva. And in fact, the actual action of doing tshuva is easy, it is natural. What's hard is the breaking out of the routine, is stopping. But if we could actually stop and think for a moment, then we would have an easy time to have successful tshuva. Moshe gathers the people together, He gathers them together, and to what purpose? We read two psukim later, In order for them to enter into a covenant with Hashem their God. What is the nature of this covenant, this bris that Moshe is bringing the Jewish people into? So the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daphim Gimel, tells us it is a bris, a covenant of mutual responsibility. This is where the idea of Kol or even Zebazeh is introduced to the Jewish people. The notion that no matter how good or not you are, ultimately the Jewish people are going to be judged as a whole, and therefore we have a responsibility to make sure that our fellow Jews is hopefully also uh, living up to the highest values and ideals. And this is the responsibility we have for each other. No Jew is in an, on an island. We all care for each other. We're all responsible for each other. Call Yisrael a Ravim Zebazet. The Gemara further has a debate about the scope of this uh, responsibility, based on a pasuk a little bit later in our parsha, Hanistros Lashem Elokeinu, but leave aside the debate about how far the responsibility goes. One thing is clear from the Gemara, even though the covenant is entered into in our Parsha with Moshe, but it does not actually take effect until the Jewish people cross into the land of Israel under the leadership of Yehoshua. And the question is why? What exactly is the nature of this Arvus? Number two, why does it have to wait until we enter the land of Israel? And number three, uh, one could ask, and this is actually the Lubavitch Rebbe's question, uh, usually when it comes to Arvus, Arvus is the idea of being a guarantor for another. We have such an, a secular idea. Someone wants to get a loan, they don't have good enough credit, so someone else is a cosigner or the guarantor. But usually that guarantor, the cosigner, is the quote-unquote gadol. He's the person or she's the person with more money, better credit, and therefore they are vouching and guaranteeing uh, the credit of the quote-unquote katan. But when it comes to Kal Yisrael or even Zabazet, it's literally Kal Yisrael. It's everybody. We're all responsible for each other, no matter what our station, no matter what our level. As the Psukim and our Parsha themselves indicate, it's not only Rashechem Shiftechem, but it's also Chotev Etzecha Ushoiv Memecha. It's even the lowest level, the wood choppers and the water carriers, they're responsible for the Rashechem Shiftechem, just like the heads of the nation are responsible for the people on the lowest level asks the Rebbe, how does that work? How does that make any sense? What exactly is going on? And therefore, based on these questions, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in a very sophisticated and penetrating sicha, tries to explain what's really going on here. He's getting to the heart of what it means to be part of a unified and cohesive Jewish people. What does it mean to be one nation? What does it mean to be a Jew? And he bases his uh, teaching on on an earlier teaching of the founder of Chabad Hasidus, the Alter Rebbe, or otherwise known as the Baal Hatanya. And his comments start with the phrase, Atem Ditzavim, in which our Parsha opens. And 
what exactly is the choice of that word mitzavim? So as we've seen in previous shiurim, this is connected to the term matzeva, like a monument. And he says, just like a monument is a single unified piece of stone or marble, so to the Jewish people, koma achas shlema, we are a single unified uh, unit, one complete unit. And therefore he says, using another parable or a mashal, just like a body, in order for the body to be shalem, to be whole, it's not enough just to have the quote-unquote important or even most of the limbs, but rather you need all of the limbs, including the quote-unquote less important ones. Otherwise, you may have something decent or even very good, but you certainly would not have a whole body. Every limb contributes something unique and is therefore necessary. So too, uh, the nimshal goes, the Jewish people, we are like a koma achas, we're like a single unified body. In order for us to be shalem, in order for us to be whole, we need everyone, because everyone, even the quote-unquote people on the lowest level, contribute something unique and meaningful. Furthering this teaching and taking it to a whole nother level, the Balatani, the Alter Rebbe, commenting on a pasuk towards the end of Sefer Dvarim, that all the leaders of the tribes will gather together. So the Alter Rebbe adds six words. What is the goal of this gathering? They all come together to be one. But the more recent Lubavitcher Rebbe, after he quotes uh, the founder of Chabad Hasidus, he says it's really striking. He added six words, and three of them seem to be synonymous, redundant, saying the same thing. Yachad, l'achadim, and ke'echad. Obviously, if the Alter Rebbe felt the need to use three different terms to say the same thing in six words, it must be that, in fact, the three terms actually are not the same thing, but each one represents something different. And based on this background, the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains, in fact, there are three levels of unity, one which is kind of the most basic, and the two which are higher and more transcendent, which are characteristic of what makes the Jewish people unique. That first level, the first word that was mentioned is, mitasfim yachad. What does it mean yachad? It means that everyone's different, everyone comes together for a common goal, even though we are dvarim shonim, the people are different, they're distinct, they're disjunct, but they have a, they share a common goal or purpose and they come together to accomplish that. But there's a higher level that is now something unique to the Jewish people, not just coming together for a common goal, but la'achadim. And that is that each specific person, each prat, is actually connected to each other in the way that limbs of a body are connected to each other. And therefore, no single prat is complete without the others. Yes, we can say this is the arm and that's the head. Each one has their individual identity. But they need each other in order to be complete, just like the limbs of the body need each other to be complete. And even higher than that, he says, the third level is ke'echad, complete cohesion. And that happens when we realize that it's one indivisible whole a koma achas, as we saw previously. The recognition that deep down, even though we can say this is the head or this is the arm or this is the leg, but that deep down, we're actually all one. Every limb of the body, you may be able to identify the different limbs, but each of the limbs come from the same DNA. In fact, they are all one in the same. Says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, on the one hand, in terms of level of unity, that third level is really the highest. It shows that we're each completely one, completely indivisible, totally cohesive. On the other hand, he says, the second level is in a certain sense higher because the perfection of the body is only such because all of the parts of the body are actually different. If we were all the same, it would actually be redundant, wouldn't be helpful at all. Just like the body comes a single unit, but only because each 
limb is doing its own thing. So too, yes, the third level is very, very high and important, but really it's all based on the fact that it needs the uniqueness and distinctiveness of each different limb. So too, says the Baba Terebi, when it comes to the Jewish people, yes, ultimately our highest expression of our unity is the fact that we realize we're all one, we all share the same DNA. On the other hand, the Jewish people is only going to work on the optimal level when we realize that everyone is in fact has different things, different talents, and different ways to contribute. And finally, at answers Lubavitcher Rebbe, this is why this whole idea of mutual responsibility only took effect when we entered into the land of Israel. Because the most basic level of responsibility for each other anybody can have. But these higher levels are unique to the Jewish people, and they're based on a metaphysical reality of Kedusha, which binds us together, and that only took place when we entered into the land of Israel, which of course is the embodiment of Hashem's Kedusha in this world. A number of Mepharshim, such as the Ramban and the Sephorno, suggest that the Pasuk in our Parsha of this mitzvah that's being referred to in the Pasuk, that's not beyond our grasp, but it's not far from us, is specifically referring to the mitzvah of tshuva, of repentance. And of the many fascinating and important questions that must and should be asked to understand halachically, hashkafically, philosophically, the mitzvah of tshuva, perhaps the most basic, or one of the most basic, philosophical questions one can ask is whether tshuva in fact makes sense or not. Is it something that's logical? Is it based on a justice and fairness? Or is it something that goes beyond that and is purely God's kindness and compassion? On the one hand, uh, Mepharshim such as Rabbeinu Yonah and the beginning of Shari Tshuva, as well as the Masil Shisharim in Perak Dalid, both argue unequivocally and passionately that tshuva is totally illogical. It has nothing to do with justice or honesty or fairness, because if that's the case, we deserve to be punished, period. The very fact that there's a notion of tshuva, thankfully, is purely, in their opinion, emerging out of God's compassion, his midas ha-rachamim. Midas ha-din, strict justice, we'd be punished no matter what. But midas ha-rachamim, God's compassion, his lefnimisher din, him going beyond the letter of the law, that allows for the possibility that akira saratzon, if we uproot our previous desire for the sin, now, retroactively, that can accomplish an akiras ha-maisa, it uproots the action that we did. That is a powerful, almost magical phenomenon, and it is certainly not rooted in truth, justice, uh, or honesty or fairness, because we really don't deserve that, but rather it is not because we deserve it, but because of Hashem's compassion. Nevertheless, despite this seemingly very persuasive argument, Rabbi Wasserman, in his work, Kovetz Ma'aramim, suggests that the Gemara in Kedushin and Afmem, Amad Beis, seems to contradict this. The Gemara there discusses the exact opposite case, kind of a mirror image, of a person who was righteous his whole life, and then at the last minute, he is Toha al-Harishonos. He regrets all of his mitzvot. He regrets the religious lifestyle that he lived. Says the Gemara, even if he does this at the last moment of his life, he loses everything. That's the Gemara. But says Rabbi Hanan, what do we see? What's the more salient point, the philosophical premise and principle that emerges from this Gemara? Is that Harata, regret and this is a person who on his deathbed regrets his mitzvos, if regret can be oker mitzvos, so clearly that's not coming from Hashem's mitzvahim, his compassion. It may be fair, but it's not compassionate. If it's happening, it's because Hashem is saying, midas hadin is, if you regret doing your mitzvos, then you deserve to lose the credit for them. You deserve not to be rewarded. Regret makes you deserve to lose that thing you're regretting. Well, if that's the case, if that's what emerges so clearly from the Gemara in Kiddushin, about a person who regrets his mitzvos, so now getting back to our question of tshuva, when you regret a sin, 
says Rabbi Hanan, it should be just the same. If regret means you deserve to lose the credit of your mitzvos, then it ought to be the case that regret makes you deserve to lose the punishment of your sin. And therefore, shouldn't we rather say, argues Rabbi Hanan, based on this Gemara, that tshuva is in fact midas ha-din. We deserve not to be punished. We deserve to be forgiven. Just like the person who regrets his mitzvos deserves to lose his reward. If that's the case, why did these previous thinkers, such as Rabbi Yonah and Mitzvah why do they seem to argue so convincingly that in fact, it is Midas HaRachamim. If from the Gemara and Kedushin, it seems clear that it's actually something we would deserve. It's Midas HaDin. So Rabbi Hanan actually tells us that he was so bothered by the question that he asked it. He asked the question to his saintly Rebbe, the Chavetz Chaim. And he quotes his Rebbe as saying as follows. On the one hand, the fact that a person would merely be forgiven for his sins because he genuinely regretted them, that is Midas HaDin. You deserve that. Nevertheless, the Gemara tells us, as is well known, that if a person does the highest level of tshuva, tshuva me'ava, you do repentance, you repent your sins, you regret them out of pure love and sincere idealism and love and commitment to Hashem, if you have that kind of sincere tshuva me'ava, then your avera is not only something you're not punished for, but somehow magically hocus pocus, your avera turns into a zechus, turns into a mitzvah. It's as if the cheeseburger that you ate turns into having eaten the meat of a korban. Somehow you get a mitzvah where you used to have a sin. Says the Chavetz Chaim, that's a Gemara, that's a phenomenon. We can't possibly understand that. That's totally illogical. Like I said, it's kind of a halakhic hocus pocus. Says the Chavetz Chaim, that's miras harachmim. That's what these commentaries are referring to. That's clearly God's compassion going with Nimishor Sadin. But the basic idea that if you regret, you don't deserve to be punished, so Chavetz Chaim says, yeah, and Hanami, that's something that you deserve, that's Midas Hadin, just like the Gemara and Kedushin seem to indicate. Despite his obvious and tremendous respect for his Rebbe, Rabbi Chana Wasserman is not willing to accept this interpretation of the Chavetz Chaim. After all, he says, when you look in the words of Mesil Sesharim, you look in the words of Rabbi Yonah, it does not seem like this at all. It seems like they are saying all tshuva categorically is Midas Harachamim. Whereas according to the Chavetz Chaim, it emerges that the basic idea of tshuva is actually Midas Adin. So if, it's, if we don't accept the Chavetz Chaim's answer, what are we left with? And here the Rabbi Hanan proposes his own idea, and it's actually based on something else that the same author of the Mesil Sesharim wrote in his other famous work, Derech Hashem, the Ramchal, author of the Mesil Sesharim, who we've already said is of the opinion that Tshuva is Midas Arachmim. So here Rabbi Hanan says in Derech Hashem that there are two aspects, two dimensions, two dinim in all mitzvos. There is, first of all, the benefit, the inherent value proposition of the mitzvah itself, and that's why this action would have been worthy of doing even if we hadn't been commanded. That's the idea, for example, of the avos, having done all the mitzvahs even before they were commanded, because there's something inherently valuable and beneficial in those mitzvahs. Secondly, however, there's a second dimension of reward we get when we do a mitzvah, and that is that we've been commanded, per se. The very fact that we're being commanded and we're listening to God's command, that itself has independent value, independent and separate from the content of the mitzvah. The very fact that Hashem said, because I said so, and you did it, that's enough to be rewarded. Says Rabbi Hanan, based on this, same is true in the reverse, when it comes to sins. If we would sin, there's two dimensions. The spiritual damage, because of the specific damaging uh, and unhealthy spiritual act, characteristics of the act. And then there's a second dimension, the very act of disobedience and rebellion against God's will. Says Rabbi Hanan, in light of all this, we can now go back to the Gemara we started with. When the Gemara says, if you regret your mitzvot, you lose your reward, says Rabbi Hanan, we only mean 
the second aspect, the idea that you get rewarded for obedience. So if you regret obeying God, you lose that. But the fact that there was a certain benefit to the mitzvah, an inherent benefit, that you can't take away. So too, when it comes to tshuva, regretting having done a sin, that takes away the obedience to God, but the benefits, excuse me, the damages of the sin, that you can never undo.